Hello, everyone. Welcome to Oh My Pod. Part of the name of this podcast was to explore different topics that people want to know about, might not know about, or just generally uh, curious about. And the past few weeks have been a lot of focus on alternative health. So as we move into 2018, when people do major resets, you know, rethink their goals and priorities, I think it's time to talk about something that's taboo, barely discussed, it's kind of scary, and that's finances. So today I have Lauren Engel King, a financial advisor, to help us with financial planning. And this will be more of a one-on-one podcast, but obviously I want to preface this with you know, finances are very situational and can be different for everyone, but I do think this is a great way to start looking at your finances and planning for your future. So Lauren, could you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Um, like Chelsea said, my name is Lauren Engel King. I am a Chicago, Chicago native. I grew up here and I've stayed here essentially my entire life. Um, a little bit of background on me. So I actually came to this role first as a client a few years ago. And I really always like sharing that with, with individuals and, and clients just because I've been on both sides of the conversations over the years. So I've been lucky where I've seen both perspectives, which has definitely played a huge role into how I interact with my clients, both now and in the future. And also I can take some personal takeaways that I had when coming out of college and being a good saver, but just didn't necessarily know where to save. Um, and then essentially I've come into this place over time as well. So, yeah. And I came to you because my finances are atrocious. <laughs> they still kind of are. The one thing I have going for me is my 401k, which we'll definitely talk about. Um, but you definitely helped me learn to save and prioritize where my funds are going each paycheck. But I do think we need a lot of help. I still need a lot of help and I'm sure my listeners do too. So I think a very basic question is, where do you start with your finances? Yeah, absolutely. So we all need to start by building an emergency fund. So a good rule of thumb is about three to six uh, months of expenses just sitting in cash, just in case there's an immediate need for a good amount of money. So you get sick or hurt, the car breaks down, et cetera. Um, If you work in more of a volatile atmosphere, say you're a trader or you're a business owner, you might want to air closer to about 12 months of expenses just sitting in cash. But if you're salary-based, three months is a really great starting point. Um, For some peers coming out of school when they're tackling student loans, credit cards, retirement savings, et cetera, your emergency fund's not gonna be built overnight. So I would essentially try to make a goal for yourself saying a year from now, two years from now, I'm looking to have my emergency fund completely taken care of. Anything excess excess of your emergency fund, you can essentially allocate to some sort of goal. Okay, and that makes me, when I think of my personal savings, I always have trouble because I need to pay off student loans, I have credit card debt, I also have my basic life expenses, rent, groceries, entertainment. Um, You know, if you have all these things going on, how do you balance that out? Yeah, and like you said, the keyword is balance there. Um, We don't want to throw all of our money into short-term goals and completely ignore retirement because retirement is essentially a huge goal to accomplish. But at the same time, you can't throw all your savings towards retirement and completely ignore things like student loans, credit cards, real estate purchases in the future. Um, So when we look at student loans, it's really based around where your interest rates are at. If you have anything that's above, say, like 6%, we typically want to get a little bit more aggressive in paying down our student loans. And the reason that that is is any dollars... Well, the reason that that is, is because you can essentially put excess dollars somewhere else, say like your 401k, that can get you a greater return long term than those that 4%, 5%, 6% in your student loan interest rates. Um, So that's where it's, it's, if you have lower interest rates, it's best practice just to pay those minimums and then essentially 
put dollars elsewhere where it can get you a greater return. I always have trouble um, paying off all these different debts while also trying to afford the lifestyle I have, which is traveling and eating out. And we're in Chicago, we love bottomless brunch and games and this and that. Um, And so I think a lot of people end up putting a lot of this stuff on their credit card. So if you have, let's say it's between student loans and credit cards, like what's more important? Yeah, good question. Credit cards become a priority. And the reason that that is, those interest rates are typically so high. You might be lucky where you have a zero interest card for 15 months, 18 months, whatever it would be. Um, but the the importance here is just about building good muscles and good habits early on. So if we're young in our 20s and we're single and we have credit card debt, likelihood is that that might really continue over time because it becomes so much harder to save as we get married, safer, real estate, because education. Um, and so when having these conversations when you're young and making a point to knock out credit card debt when you're young is just going to give you so many more options long term and allow you to have more abilities to save essentially. So my opinion is to always just knock out those credit cards first um, and then you can start being a, a little bit more aggressive in other areas. Absolutely. I, I agree because I've got hit recently with a interest charge on my credit card and it wasn't pretty and I've learned the hard way. <laughs> Take care of those. But what I also learned the hard way is I was a complete idiot in college and I blew my student loans. I thought it was like monopoly money. I was using it on spring break. I was eating out. I remember my mom and dad said, just give the money back as soon as you get your textbooks and pay for your classes. And I, when you're, you know, 19, 20, you see $2,000 in your bank account, you think you're a millionaire. <laughs> and so I was just blowing through that. And so now I have quite a bit of student loan debt. Um, some of them are over 6%. Some of them aren't. But outside of just paying the minimums, are there other things that people can do to pay that debt off quicker? Yeah. A lot of my clients have had a lot of success with SoFi, S-O-F-I. You may, if you live here in Chicago, you, you might see a lot of billboards um, throughout the city. They do a great job advertising. Um, um, but they're basically a firm that will go and they buy or they pay out essentially your student loans for you and then you pay them moving forward. And so the incentive for individuals is that you can essentially get your minimums lowered and your interest rates lowered. The, the key thing really is the interest rates, just knowing that if we can get, for example, I had a client that had 90 grand student loans at eight and a half percent kind of as a, an average there because it was over a few different loans, um, we were able to get that 8.5% down to 6% through refinancing through SoFi. So that's somewhat of a big difference in the short term, but long term that allows that individual to put more money maybe to her 401k than being kind of um, consumed with the student loans at this stage. So I will always encourage individuals just to explore your options. Um, SoFi or refinancing and consolidating isn't always a great option for everyone. It's pretty situational based, but I would suggest doing some homework and in, in, in looking into different options that are available to you. Yeah, because you told me to look into that and we kind of had that issue where some of mine were so high and then some of them were so low where it was coming at an average where I would actually end up maybe paying a little more than my lower interest. So mm-hmm. like you said, it's definitely situational and you want to look into it more yeah. based on what how many uh, dollars you have in debt and your interest rates. Um, another question I had is when you are having maybe like a wedding coming up or you're trying to save for a house or a car, but you also have, again, like credit card debt and student loans, how can you balance all these things? This It actually blows my mind that people my age own homes and are having kids and mm-hmm. everything because I like overdrafted three weeks ago. So <laughs> how can we make sure that people aren't overdrafting like me, but also, um, again, saving for these huge goals like weddings and houses and babies? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think with credit cards, again, they become a priority. Uh, there's no rush to purchase property. I mean, some people might argue that there's no also rush to get married either. I mean, right. there's excitement behind those goals, but that 22% is essentially just not going to go away. And it's like you said, you get hit with an interest rate and it just becomes harder to pay off over time. So again, the importance of building good saving habits and good um, muscles when you're young, just to be able to continue those is huge because you want to make sure that when you purchase that real estate purchase in the future, you're also not going into credit card debt in order to, to, to pay for the furniture and to furnish the place as well. So we want to essentially balance all those goals. So again, credit cards essentially will come first, um, and then we can start allocating some additional dollars to cash goals. That's not necessarily the the most fun answer. The the average household in the United States is about twenty five grand of credit card debt, oh, wow. so it's very common. But we want to do everything that we can to eliminate that. That makes sense. I think something that people can learn too is like there's things you can do weekly to just cut back on expenses. Um, even myself. I hate cooking groceries, getting groceries and then cooking. Um, So I was eating out all the time, like breakfast, lunch, dinner. And then I noticed Trader Joe's has just really good microwavable meals. And so now I don't have to cook all the time, which has definitely helped me save money. But what are some other things that people can cut back on to maybe uh, expedite their savings funds? Yeah, absolutely. With... um Say you live in a high-rise building and they have a gym, maybe you shouldn't be paying for some sort of outside gym membership. If you live by yourself or one other person and the cable bill is $200 a month, that might also be an ability to say, hey, can we just pay for Netflix and that be it? Um, Dining out is clearly a huge one with our peers. And essentially what I can say there is, I don't want our peers not to have fun. I think there's a there needs to be a balance in life. I want you guys to be able to go to brunch on Saturday. Right. Um, but we need to make sure that we're not stealing from ourselves or stealing from other goals in order to ha- to experience things like brunch. And so, some a habit that has worked well for a few individuals or a few even friends of mine is just having some sort of cash goal of saying, hey, I'm going to take out $1,000 a month, for example, and that's going to be the cash that I use for um, Ubers or taxis, going out, eating, any sort of any like anything that they would typically put on a credit card bill outside of like rent, um, using that money and using cash to, to spend each and every week. Because then there's like a visual thing with it as well where they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm halfway into the month, but I've already spent $600. I can't spend as much these next two weeks. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't go um, to say brunch on this Saturday. Right. I brunch the last two Saturdays, whatever it may be. Um, but people just aimlessly will just go on and, and swipe the card. Um, but when you have cash, it's more of a tangible object. People can relate to that more. It's, it's more... Um, it's more ingrained to their head when they essentially will be paying with cash. That's a really good way of doing that. Um, So that's a recommendation for dining out. And then a, a lot of our peers, specifically females, how many people are getting their nails done all the time? That, uh, I'm <laughs> a big victim of that. <laughs> so when people are like, I can't save, but you're going to get a no-chip manicure every two weeks, it's like I can't mm-hmm. I can't uh, fathom, I can't understand that. You'll, I just pointed out. I've Chelsea does not have her nails painted. Yeah, I don't have my nails painted because I just did a Euro trip, and I'm like, I can't do my nails anymore. <laughs> See, and, there you and, go. Oh, we didn't even talk about it's this. A little we good balance. Up, like, yeah. It's a, such a bad habit. 
That's so true. Um, I also know that a lot of my friends now are starting to move in with boyfriends or even married, engaged. Um, and that is probably the hardest thing for couples to talk about. I feel like that's kind of what you hear is even like a biggest uh, reason for divorce. And it always comes down to finances. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a really hard subject for couples to talk about. So we, what's like maybe something that couples can do um, to start planning their financial future together? I had um, a, a client recently that just got engaged, and uh, typically at that point, I want to get married all for always offer up, say like, "Hey, would you want so and so to start being a part of your conversations? Does it make sense to start planning together as a family?" Um, and at that point, he shared that, "Yep, absolutely want to do it, but we still need to conquer the conversation by ourselves. We actually have a date on the calendar in February. We're gonna get a bottle of wine, sit down, and we're gonna discuss our finances together. Oh, alcohol as well. So <laughs> there, there creates um." a little bit of a easier conversation, but, um, Completing a budget sheet together is a really good exercise, especially if you live together, because between rent and expenses that you're sharing, it really gives each other a really good idea of where people are spending their money, maybe some areas where the two of them can tighten up, especially if they have combined goals. So if it is a goal as a couple to purchase the next few years, how much does each individual have to be saving, assuming that income is possibly different or it could be the same, um, making sort of some sort of household goal together. Um, another thing is that is very helpful is just including a third person. So um, when I sit down with a couple, I'll typically bring up some of the harder questions that they might not want to bring up on their own. Um, I can ask them questions that they might not be thinking of from maybe a long-term standpoint. Um, And from there, it's a really good experience typically on both ends because all three parties kind of feel like they have a really good understanding now of where the family is looking to plan, what things are important to them, what are some of their fears and concerns, um, and it really just gets everyone on the same page. So like you you said, a huge reason for divorce essentially in the United States comes down to money and essentially by tackling these these topics sooner rather than later is just going to help the couple out longer in the, in the long run because essentially if you get married to someone and they have debt that becomes your debt as well too so you just want to be cognizant of that that's like a tree I didn't think about it's like oh I, I do this this and this and I have this amount of student loans, like, should we get married? Yeah. <laughs> um, it also just made me think of um, combining finances. Is that something couples should do? Typically, most of my clients are doing that once they get legally married. Um, of course, have the conversation beforehand. Some people do combine finances before, but typically you will see that once um, after the marriage, after the honeymoon. Um, but I would typically suggest having a conversation individually or with, a, with an advisor definitely beforehand. Um, so then again, we make sure that everyone's on the same page. And I'm glad that you're bringing up like early on and having these conversations when you're younger and not making it so taboo because it blows my mind. Like even now, I I just went through a breakup and people are like, what happened? What's going on? This and that. And you're like, that's very personal. But if you bring up finances, it's like, do not talk about that. Yeah. Leave that off the table. I'm like, wait, we're going to talk about my very personal life, but we're not going to talk about something that everyone has issues with. Right. And so I think to your point, like, I wish I learned half of this stuff when I was 18. I think there should be, like, a college course on it. Yeah, like, how, like what is a 401k in, in no, college? No, like, I have no idea how this wasn't involved. I still have to call my dad and help with taxes, and, like, I'm, tw- I'm almost 27, so. To, to piggyback off that a little bit, too, 
Um, the importance of starting these conversations sooner rather than later is so impactful from a long-term position. So when I think about like my most successful clients, they aren't the ones that are making the most money. They're the ones that built really good habits at a long, young age and just continue those throughout their lifetime. So it just goes back to starting these good habits or building these, these good muscles sooner rather than later um, because they're just going to be in a much better spot long-term. That makes so much sense. Even like packing lunch. I know a girl that I used to work with just packed her lunch every day and was adamant about it. Mm-hmm. And then was going on like trips to Australia and New Zealand. And we're like, how is she affording that? And she's like, I just pack my lunch and I don't eat out. And just that simple habit, she was able to afford like these luxury trips overseas. Yeah. That's so crazy. Um, I think another question when we're going off like starting young and having these conversations is when should we start saving for retirement? Because this was never on my mind when I started working. My dad brought it up to me and thank God he did because now I have a solid 401k. Like I said, that's the one positive trait about my mm-hmm. finances right now. So what do you think on, on that subject? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you essentially have some sort of income coming in the door or if you have the ability to save, you should be saving for retirement as soon as possible. And that's really kind of for two reasons. One compounding interest in the time value of money. So those dollars just have more time to grow. So being a 22 year old and being able to save $100, $200 a month into your 401k is so impactful compared to that $500 that you can save at the age of 40 or 50. Um, these conversations are these tweaks that you can essentially make when you're young. Those little changes are so impactful from a long-term play. Um, also, the second piece of it is that your employer is typically offering you free money. Chelsea, I can't give you free money or else I would. Um, So we don't want to leave that on the table. So if your employer is giving you 3% and you have to put in 3% for your 401k, you should absolutely be doing it at the minimum because we want to take advantage of those free dollars. And I think people get so, so confused on what that even means. Like, I thought 401k for the longest time just meant 401,000. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that. So can you explain what does that mean and what's actually the difference between a 401k and an IRA? So a 401k is a portion of the tax code. So a 401k um, is an employer plan that allows you to start saving dollars for retirement. So it's done solely through your employer. Um, there's 457s, 403Bs that might be other um, terms that people have used or have heard, um, especially if they're in some sort of public sector like teachers or working for the government. Um, what an IRA is, is an individual retirement account. So it's retirement dollars that are saved outside your employer. So really in regards to qualified tools, qualified meaningful for retirement, you can use your 401k or employer-sponsored plan, and then you can use essentially additional IRA dollars, so savings outside of your employer. So what would be best for, for example, I have a 401k, should I also be getting an IRA? Like, how would you advise someone based on these two different retirement funds? That is really situational, depending on income, depending on the plan that your employer provides. For example, um, some employers give you options with your 401k, some do not. So you essentially only have one plan that you're allowed to fund, which I think we'll dive in a little bit deeper into. Um, But starting somewhere rather than nothing is just the biggest thing. So um, I'll see a lot of individuals come out of school, maybe with a finance background, and they're setting up a Roth IRA for themselves, which is a fantastic tool to be using. But they also get free money through their employers who want to be using the 401k. So I would say at a minimum, coming out of school and starting to save for retirement, 
take advantage of the match through your employer. So focus on using that 401k first. And so to break it down more simply to 401k is with an employer and an IRA is outside of your employer? Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I'll give a personal anecdote too that someone in my office started saving, like me, like right off the bat when they started working, when they were 22, 23, um, they already have, I think, about 60K in their 401k. Mm-hmm. And then a girl started saving just this year and she barely has like 5,000. And they started working at the same time. So it just shows you just a few years. Huge have, they both haven't been here that long. It's about three to four years, but. I mean, $55,000 almost difference just from starting earlier. So that's insane. Yeah, and I think, too, that people aren't looking at their four. People hardly ever look at their four. When I sit down and I ask them what kind they have, how much they're contributing, how much is in there, very rarely do people have no exact details. And so sometimes if it's just helpful to say every month or in the first of every month or maybe every quarter, I'm going to go in and look at my 401k just to show yourself that you are saving. You're just saving for a different stage of life. Um because I think people forget that they are saving 10%, 15%, whatever it may be into their 401k, where when you look into that account, you see 60 grand in there, that's huge. And you're going to continue to grow that asset over time as well. And that actually leads me to another question of how much should we actually be saving for retirement? Millennials need to be saving about 20% for retirement. However, most of our peers really can't do that right away. And so we want to start somewhere rather than nowhere at all. So in my opinion, putting 10% away would be about a C, 15% would be a B, 20% would be essentially an A. Um, so we'll want to work up to that 20% over time. And a good way of doing that is just saying every six months, um, I'm going to bump my 401k up maybe one or, one or 2%. Um, and those little tweaks when you're young and if you continue that over time, uh, really just going to accelerate that 401k long term. Um, but like I said, people can't just save 20% off the bat because we're balancing student loans, credit card debt, real estate purchases, maybe kids' education, or we need to have some sort of balance. But the important thing is just building the muscle to slowly increase that contribution over time. And can you remind me, too, of what age you can take that money out? Great question. So you cannot access those dollars until 59 and a half. Um, At the age of 70 and and a half, there's something called a minimum distribution or required, there's something called a required minimum distribution, um, which basically just says an individual is required to take out a, a, is required to take out a certain amount each and every year out of that 401k. There's not a specific number because it's dependent on how much money you have in there. But 59 and a half is when you can start accessing those dollars. Um, Anything prior to 59 and a half, you're going to get hit with a penalty about 10%. Okay, I was going to ask that because I'm thinking even with my own account right now, I have so much in there. In my mind, I'm thinking, why can't I just take that money out and pay off all my student loans? But what would be your reaction to that? I would, I would tell you absolutely not to do that. Um, it just goes back to having a balance. So we want to look at the big picture. We want to look at short, mid, and long-term goals. Short-term goals are the student loans, the, the credit card debt, the real estate purchases. Long-term goals are things like retirement. Um, we can't ignore either either one. And so when you save money for retirement, you are saving for a different stage in your life. And so not only, say you have some sort of pre-tax savings tool for retirement, so a traditional 401k, you grab those dollars at the age of 30 saying, hey, I need 20 grand for a real estate purchase. This sounds like a really good investment. You're gonna pay taxes on those dollars and get hit with a 10% penalty. So, and then what that does long-term is we're just 
delaying the inevitable of we need to essentially save enough to pay yourself a paycheck each and every year till you pass away. That's a huge accomplishment. Um, and so the little tweaks that you do today are, are, are going to be so impactful long term. So if you go and access the 401k once, you might think it's okay to do that essentially again down the road. Right. And that we've kind of talked about this too before where for me, I don't want to get married for like five more years. I'm, I have no problem renting the next five years, uh, you know, a condo or an apartment. I don't plan on having a huge lavish wedding. I love traveling. So for me, especially, it's hard for me to save for 401ks and even like an emergency savings fund because I'm like, I just want to live my life right now and blow mm-hmm. my money and have these fun adventures while I can. I don't have any kids. I don't have pets. Like, what do you say to people like me that are huge splurgers mm-hmm. um, that, you know, want to live right now and not be so frugal where we're also holding ourselves back a little bit? Yeah, I think a budget a budgeting exercise is a really great starting point. I know that we've done that in the past, too, and just building in those life life events or life excitements, like travel, putting $200 a month, say, for travel. So when we go and travel to Europe at the end of the year and we need $2,400 for that, we essentially counted that for that in our budget sheet. So um, by no means do I not want our peers to have fun, but we also don't want to have so much fun and then not, not be able to experiences other things that are really important to us. So I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's just balance. Mm -hmm. So just looking at the big picture, I think a lot of our peers coming out of school think think that rent is just throwing your money away. We need to purchase as soon as property, start building that asset. Um, Some people love real estate, some people hate real estate. It's it's dependent on the individual, Um, but there is no rush. there's a flexibility essentially for our peers in our mid 20s to later 20s saying hey I realize I don't love my career I want something else I want to move across the country um, people have kind of like this midlife crisis as mm-hmm. I'm sure you've all heard of just wanting <laughs> to make some month. <laughs> wanting to make some sort of change and so being locked into a real estate purchase um, you lose flexibility that is really important at this stage. Um, so if, if real estate is going to be a huge portion of your portfolio, if you want to do investment properties, if your parents have had a lot of success with it, I encounter that all the time, and that's absolutely fair. Um, but we still need to be saving for other goals as well. I also have a question on like good debt and bad debt. Is that a thing? Because someone told me when I was talking about paying off my student finance or student loans, I wanted to get really aggressive and just like put all my commission checks towards it. Um, and then someone's like, Oh, why don't you just pay the minimum? It's essentially like good credit or good debt. What are your thoughts on that? I think you have to think of student loans as just an investment in yourself, an investment for the future. Um, I sit down with a lot of also doctors and attorneys where they have hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt, and they just spend a lot of time and money investing in themselves for the future. And that's even if you're coming out of an undergrad program with 40 grand in student card uh, in student loans, um, that was an investment for your future. And so. When your interest rates are at three, four, five percent, that's pretty low in the grand scheme of things. Where you still have the ability to save, your minimums probably aren't that high. Um, overall, it's a it's a great piece to have, or at least ha- having the option to go to school. Um, I would say th- bad debt is credit card debt. Right. So if we want to talk about one thing to eliminate first, it's credit cards. Um, unless you have the ability to save a ton of cash, there's really no reason to aggressively pay down your student loans and to ignore other goals. I had a question on that too, because, um, you know, 
I've heard so many different takes on, oh, you shouldn't even build a savings fund if you have so much credit card debt because your interest rates are killing you. And then I've heard, oh, just pay off everything equally. But then some people are like, well, I don't want this credit card debt sitting there forever. Um, I've heard people just say invest. It's the same thing as savings, but it's, you know, it's developing interest. So you're having all these funds. Like, Mm -hmm. what is your what are your thoughts on that? Typically, typically with individuals that have credit card debt and have with the people with credit card debt, they have nothing in savings typically. Um, so where I come in is just saying we're going to make some sort of debt repayment strategy in place. So we're going to take out credit cards, but we also need to build your emergency fund. We need to do the two in conjunction with each other. And the reason that that is, see, you have four grand credit cards. We do an awesome job paying that off. And then your car breaks down or you, you get fired from your job. Well, then you're going to go right back to putting money on credit cards, which is essentially what we just tried to get ourselves out of. Mm -hmm. So if someone's able to save $500 a month, this is very situational based, but typically wanting to say, hey, let's put half of that to the emergency fund and half of that to the credit cards, assuming that they're getting hit with a high interest rate because I don't. I don't want to fully focus on one. We'll want to try to conquer both. Right. Um, Yeah. That makes sense. And I've always thought about, you know, in the future, I do want a house. I'm just not there yet mentally, financially, just not part of the plan right now in Chicago. So when I do get to that point, should I be saving for real estate or for retirement? I'm sure the answer might be like both. But is there like more of a breakdown that you can explain which one's more important, maybe? Yeah, I would say at a minimum, if you aren't, you need to be putting 10% into your 401k. If you're not doing that, you shouldn't really be saving for dollars for real estate. If you're doing 10%, we can start essentially um, balancing other goals like real estate. Um, And that's where I would encourage you to actually just have a conversation with a mortgage banker. Um, That's where I essentially will point all of my clients to um, a peer of mine that I vetted over the years that has taken really great care of my clients. And even just purely from an educational standpoint, um, my mortgage banker suggests coming in a year or two before you're thinking about purchasing purely from an educational standpoint, because then we can have more of a, a direct number or a direct goal of what we need to be putting down for a home. So many people just say, hey, we're putting down 20% because that's that's what everyone hears. Mm-hmm. People always hear about putting 20% down. We are in such a low interest rate environment that people are putting down a lot less nowadays. Um, and essentially the reason that that is, is they can essentially be putting money towards other goals. Um, when you put less than 20% down, you get you have to pay something called PMI, which is basically just insurance for having the option to put less money down. Mm-hmm. So people typically want to avoid that, saying, "Hey, I'm only going to put twenty percent down just because I want to um, avoid this this fee per month or this insurance per month, and I want to have lower lower monthly statements." Um, Unless you just have 20% of that cash for that down payment just sitting around and you're not going to miss it, it really makes sense to put less down. I'm by no means a mortgage mortgage expert. Real estate is not my focus. It's not the area that I'm educated in, but I've chosen to surround myself with smart, proactive people that right. um, specialize in that area. And that's essentially the guidance I've gotten, especially in our current interest rate environment, that if you can put 5% down and then put more away into your 401k you're gonna be in a better position hopefully long-term. One thing that you have to think about real estate too, which I someone told me, which was, which, which was such an interesting statement, is that real estate is the only investment that can go negative on you. Mm, that's kind of scary. I know. 
So should I just rant for the rest of my life? <laughs> oh my gosh, so many things to think about. And I think another confusing thing is that a lot of people's companies offer Roth 401ks. And we just talked about, what was it, an IRA and a 401k. Mm-hmm. I've also heard of Roth IRA. Like all of these are like Japanese terms to me. Like yeah. what, is, what does this mean? Can you explain it in like kindergarten language? Yep. Because no one seems to understand, including me. And we've talked about it. Three times. <laughs> <laughs> a 401k that's a, that's provided from an employer, they will start with at least a traditional 401k that allows you to save options pre-tax for retirement. More companies nowadays, especially with so many millennials working with them, um, are building in something called a Roth 401k, which gives them the option to save pre-tax and post-tax into their employer-sponsored plan. From there, we have to decide what's a really great option for us. Like, what makes the most sense? Should I be saving money traditional? Should I be saving money Roth? Um, A lot of people will focus around diversification. So I should have pre- and post-tax dollars for retirement. Um, Absolutely a great idea idea. Uh, Your 401k match, so the free money that they're giving you, will typically always only be able to be contributed pre-tax, so just the traditional. So if you said, hey, I'm going to put 6% into my 401k, they're going to match me three, you have the choice of putting in that 6% pre-tax or post-tax, where the employer match will always be pre-tax 3%. Got it. Um, Based off all the information that I've read, our peers should be saving money post-tax. And it's really kind of for two reasons. The first is that most of our peers are in the lowest tax bracket they'll ever be in. Taxes are are the lowest they've ever been since the Carter, Carter administration. So we should be paying taxes today when they're essentially on sale for our peers. For example, would you rather pay taxes at 25% tax bracket or north of a 30% tax bracket in the future? Most people wanna pay less on taxes, so we wanna take the break today. The second piece of the Roth is that when you save money post-tax, you're actually saving more money. For example, pre-tax dollars going at 10%, when you pay taxes on it, it's gonna to come to you as like about seven or 8%. If you save 10% post-tax, you're never paying taxes on those dollars, so that's a full 10% towards retirement. It. So it's just another way of building in more for savings for retirement. Um, People will argue pre-tax for post-tax savings. Some people will only want to contribute pre-tax. My encouragement for clients would just be to be cognizant of where your tax bracket lies right now. We want to be respectful of that in each and every calendar year. But a good option is to pay tax today when hopefully you're in your lowest tax bracket and then you'll never have to pay them ever again. Um, something that people will argue with saying, hey, when I come out in retirement, I'm going to be living off of, a, I'm not going to have as high of an income coming in the door. So I want to be in a high tax bracket. Well, when you take money out for retirement, it's not based off the income com- you have coming in the door because you don't have an income in retirement. It's based off the amount of money you're taking out of your retirement tools each and every year to live off of. And so people think they're going to spend less than the retirement, but every day Saturday, people are really spending more, which is why when we run a retirement analysis or explore what retirement looks like, we typically say, well increase kind of their cost of living than what they're living off of today. And so if we did like a math equation, like I have a million dollars with my 401k and then a million dollars with a Roth 401k, 
what does that mean? Good question. So if you put a million dollars in a traditional 401k, it might be about 700 grand come retirement because we have to pay taxes on those dollars. If you put a million dollars into a Roth 401k, that's a million dollars in retirement. And that's because? When we're choosing to pay taxes. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. How much can you put into a 401k? So in the year of 2017, we can put in $18,000. They bumped it up for the year of 2018. You can actually put $18,500 into the 401k. Typically, every few years, it's increasing just to keep up with inflation. And then what about the same for an IRA? So for a traditional or a Roth IRA, you can put $5,500 annually into it. Um, If you're married and you have a spouse that works or doesn't work, you can put $5,500 each into an IRA for each individual. Um, Something to note though for a Roth IRA, um, it's a tool that the government doesn't want the wealthy to have access to. And what I mean by that is, is that there's an income limit on it. So a single individual funding a Roth IRA, once they start hitting about 115, 116, they start phasing you out of it. So you don't, you have no longer had the ability to contribute to a Roth IRA. For a joint household, their income limit is about $180,000 and they start phasing you out of that as well. So going back to your Roth 401k, if you have that option, for a Roth IRA, they limit how much you can put in at $5,500 annually, and you can't contribute once you hit a certain income limit. You can put over three times as much into your 401k program, and they do not put any sort of income limit on it. So it is, it. A, it is a great tool that if you're a high income owner and you don't have access to a Roth IRA, at least your employer is giving it to you into your 401k program. A lot of people I sit down with, my role is to educate them on what their group benefits are. And a lot of people aren't aware that they have a Roth 401k through their employer. Um, and so once we determine that there is a Roth 401k, essentially my role is to come in and educate them on the benefits of saying being pre-tax or post-tax and saying if they were to put the 10% in pre-tax versus 10% in post-tax, how is that? How are they pacing essentially long-term? And so I can kind of educate them even from a visual standpoint of how you're pacing for retirement, especially when we look at the tax game, because the taxes, taxes will pay a huge role long-term, especially as individual and family incomes continue to go up. And I remember we did that and you did like a projection chart and all mm-hmm. these visuals. And at first I was like, this again, looks like rocket <laughs> science. And then once you explained it, it made so much sense because it also got me excited saying, wow, if I start saving now, here's the projection of if I'm, you know, staying in the same field, essentially, or making the same money, this is what I could have. And it was crazy to think, because you just never think you're going to make that much money or even have that much money in your bank account. And so it helped so much to go through those exercises. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's an exercise that people just don't have access to on their own or they want to kind of avoid or they think, hey, it's so far out. Why am I even thinking about it? But Anxiety essentially is a word that I hear a lot about with our peer group. And a way of just tackling that anxiousness is just by kind of tackling those issues head on. So looking at retirement, looking at how you're pacing for certain goals, because the longer that you wait to kind of tackle those goals head on or uh, kind of face the facts, it's just going to continue to get worse for you. So again, just going back into saying, hey, I'm going to start at 6% with my 401k, but in six months, I'm going to bump that up to eight. And a year from now, it's going to be 10. And sharing what that looks like from a long-term position just by making those little tweaks is extremely impactful. 
That makes me wonder too when you're saying like eight, ten, eleven, how high up should you go? You know what I mean? Is that yeah, that's a really good question. So if you're a high income earner, say you're making three hundred grand, you can't put ten um, percent away into your four hundred one k each month because you're going to hit that eighteen grand um, before essentially December of that year. Um, what we want to do essentially is we want to make sure that we're hitting the market at different times. So I'll sit down with some guys, say a trader, for example, they have a salary, um, or some sort of base throughout the year and they get a big bonus. Like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to use my bonus each and every year to max my 401k. So put 18 grand in there. However, though it's an easy way of funding it, you're only hitting the market at that one time. Mm. So what we want to do is essentially um, span that out within um, a 12 month period. So, someone that's making 180 grand each and every year, they should be putting about 10% into their 401k, um, assuming that they're able to max it out. If we're not, we want to essentially start with that match and slowly work that way up until we get to a point of maxing that out at that $18,000. Got it. That makes sense. This makes me think of something too that we're talking about millennials a lot here. Millennials love to travel to the point where actually I know quite a few people now that live overseas. My friend just married someone from Denmark. She's moving over there. My other friend lives in London. Um, So quite a few people, again, live overseas. And I'm wondering, can they save for a 401k if they're overseas? It depends on their employer. So for example, I had a client that was in Chicago um, working for an employee here, but their employer also has an office, say like um, out in London, for example. their 401k that they funded here in Chicago will stay in the United States. They aren't able to transfer it over. They can start a new 401k and they're essentially the country that they currently have a visa in. There is a way of transferring it over um, when that time comes, if if they're assuming they're coming back to the United States. But that 401k that they started in the U.S. doesn't have the ability just to jump around with them. Got it. And then just thinking of savings too. This is like back to my own personal finances that I'm thinking about. I have such a hard time saving because to me, it's just this big bucket of money. So I'm like, do I use this to cover my dentist bill or do I not not touch it and use my income to cover that and then save for an emergency in the future? Are there like tactics that you recommend either like apps or, you know, the budget planning sheet or is there, you know, a tool online or outside, you know, what can people do to start planning and not just say, what do I do with this huge bucket of money? It's just sitting there. And then like me, I would spend it. So I'm trying to stop doing that. Uh, we have to start somewhere small. Mm-hmm. So you can't say, hey, my goal is to save 10 grand in the next year. It's like, let's break it down to a monthly goal. So, um, so looking at doing a budget sheet first, saying, hey, this is the amount I'm spending each and every month, because typically think people think that they're spending less than they actually are. Maybe there's some opportunity to save. So for example, just cutting out cable, that might be an, an easy $220 each and every month that you can just put in your savings account or you can put towards that real estate purchase. Um, so that's just a really great starting point. Uh, a lot of people like using things like Mint. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside that I've heard is just it's a lot of maintenance and it's sometimes they don't fall into the right categories and mm-hmm. people have to go in. Um, people that are have are savers and have more of that saver mindset, they really like it because they're really fanatical around those numbers. Um, but people just have to explore different options and what, and what works for them. So like going back to the cash that I was talking about earlier, taking out X amount of dollars each month that is essentially can be your fun money. And then you can essentially know how much you can save or spend each, each week for right. certain meals out or nails or whatever it may be. 
Um, so Mint has been a really great one that people have enjoyed just to get a good overall understanding of where they're spending their money too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also a lot of my clients have had a lot of success with Ally Bank. Um, it's just an online bank. I think we've probably yeah, talked about that. Yeah, you got me on that one, which has helped because my issue was when I check my bank account, if the money's there, like I'm going to spend it. Yeah. And so I needed to create something that I like physically cannot touch or have a card to, or of course I can check it online, but it's like, I just don't want to check my credit card statement and my debit card statement yep. and ally. It's like, okay, I don't even want to, I'm going to pretend that doesn't exist. Yep. Something that's like out of sight, out of mind. And so it, people, all people are different. So it's just exploring different options and seeing what works for you. So if you feel like you're going to see that money in your savings account and you're going to grab it, then you want to build something that you don't, or you're not looking at all the time. And so ally bank is just an online bank people can just do it as an app on their phone where the, the upside is that with the money that you put there, it's giving you like a 1.3% return too, which is with people at Chase, it's much higher than that. So it's nice to get a little bit of a return on your money. Right. You're not keeping up with inflation, but it's not horrible. Um, and also it's just not always in your site where you can essentially go and access those dollars. So a good rule of thumb is just saying, or a good habit to make is just saying, all right, I'm going to make a monthly goal of saving X amount of dollars. So every paycheck, if I'm saving $200 a month, $100 from every paycheck is just going to be transferred to Ally Bank. Um, It's just a really great starting point, essentially. So wanting to break down the, the total goal into some sort of monthly goal and just starting from there. That definitely helps because that's my issue. I'm like, oh, I'm going to save, like you said, $10,000 this year. And then I'm in sales. So I'll be like, oh, I'll just put my commission towards that. But then when I get commission, I have to pay off my credit card Mm -hmm. debt. And and then I need to save for this and this. And so it does help to do more of that breakdown, even like weekly. Um, And an app I've been using too is Digit. It actually uses an algorithm. And it pulls from like your spending habits. And then you can actually make a goal. Like I'm going to Europe next summer. I want to save X amount by then. So that's actually been helpful for me. But yeah, to your point, do your research. There's so many different tools now, but digit for any spenders like me that's one that i actually like i don't even touch the app and then i'll look at it and i'll randomly have like 40 dollars. no like, people love that i didn't even see this so that's a good one too um i think my last question really is just like when do you start planning because i didn't really start looking at this stuff until after college um i'm trying to tell my siblings i'm the oldest of four do not touch your loans i'm like <laughs> preaching it i'm like please do not spend the money like i did um, and, you know, I do wish they would have these conversations in high school, but, like, what's your personal take on it? It's funny that you – I'm the oldest of four kids, too, so I try to share my information, too, with right. the younger siblings. Um Having these conversations earlier is just kind of the biggest piece. Um, I think people just think that when they hear of an advisor, they just think of investments. Mm-hmm. Where planning is just looking at the big picture. It's saying, hey, I have these goals throughout the next 30 plus years that I'm trying to accomplish. Of course, those goals are going to change, but we essentially want to look at short, mid, and long-term items and making sure that you're saving those excess dollars as efficiently as possible. Um, going back to anxiousness and, and reducing that as much as possible, I want my clients to be empowered. I want them to feel confident behind their finances. I want them to be able to go to some sort of, I want them to be able to go to brunch and be able to tell their girlfriends, I'm doing this and I know exactly why I'm doing it and why it's important for me and why it's a good part of my plan. Um, and so just, I would just fully encourage people that as soon as you have the ability to save, 
uh, include someone else and on the conversation and they can essentially share some of their experience with you. By no means is every conversation a planning conversation, but you might be able to take away little pieces from a tax perspective or a savings perspective or budgeting or retirement um, that might make a huge difference long term as a part of your overall plan. And I'm glad you brought up the feeling empowered thing because what I find really crazy is a lot of people just won't check their bank account. They're like, I don't want to look. Mm-hmm. I went out this weekend. I'm not going to check. Yeah. I'm like, how are you not going to check? Like, I need to check so I don't overdraft. <laughs> um, but to your point, now that I know, okay, I have my 401k set. I have this percentage going to Ally Bank. I use Digit for like fun things coming up. I have control of my finances now and my finances don't control me necessarily. Um, I'm learning. I'm still a really bad spender. Um, But I think if I wouldn't have met you, I would have still been in debt and I still would have been having zero dollars in my savings. So you've been a huge help and I want people to be able to come to you. So where can people actually find you and hopefully plan for their future as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm located here in Chicago in the loop. Um, Feel free to give me a call and just make more of an introduction from there. We can share a little bit more about what I do from a personal perspective with individuals, if that would be helpful. Um, and what my clients find is just it's, it's helpful to make that introduction first. So then when planning becomes more type of top of mind or it is more of a priority, you have someone that you can essentially turn to. So trust is extremely important. Building that with someone is not essentially going to happen right away, too. Um So feel free to give me a call. My number is 630-235-8680 and would love to make an introduction from there. Absolutely. And I will obviously link this in the show notes too, so you guys can connect with Lauren. But thank you so much. I hope everyone learned something today. I've met with Lauren like four times now and I'm still learning stuff every single time. (laughs) So thank you for coming on. Thanks.